This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. been ministered to and blessed so much already today and 
I hope you're glad you came because uh, it's been worth it. Um, so if I stink, then you know, doesn't matter because uh, you've already got your money's worth. Okay, so this is you know anything I do here that's good is just going to be bonus on top of what you've already the blessing you've already received, right? So uh, you can tell Joe anyway that it was really good. All right. I felt like a big shot today rolling into that farthest parking spot from the door. Man, the pastor mobile wasn't there, and I was like, whoa, it's open. Just rolled into that spot and walked all the way to the door. It was awesome. Um, and uh, yeah, some days Darren swipes it out from under me when Joe's gone because he's got seniority, but uh, today I got it. I feel pretty good about myself. Um, I've been doing this thing lately. Um, I got, I was gone last week, went to a, a youth pastors conference. Um, really a blessing that I got to go. Um, and I went, uh, Sonny Rosebrook some, has been to our church a few times. Uh, a lot of you know the Rosebrook family that lives up near Osceola. Um, but Sonny just moved his family from near Osceola up to South Dakota to be a youth pastor uh, in the spring this year. And I mean, he's always been in the corporate world and purchasing, that kind of thing, and felt like God was calling him to be a youth pastor. And whenever I hear that anybody's called to be a youth pastor, I get all excited, you know, because you know, this is what I do. And so, uh, Sonny and I, um, when, he, when he moved, I uh, invited him to go with me to this conference and um, his boss, Danny Menifee, Lowell's son, um, up there, his, his senior pastor said, yeah, he, he can go. And so we got to go to this conference together, and, and I, I went to a, like, there's the breakout sessions where you can choose different things to go to. And uh, by the way, that, that flickering light, it's just going to happen. We're just going to have to deal with it, okay? Don't worry about it. It'll be all right. Nothing's burning down, all right? Um. But I, I went to these breakout sessions that were all focused on uh, Jesus-centered youth ministry. And it's uh, some of you have seen in the bookstore here, they've got the Bible that's called the Jesus-centered Bible. Um, and everybody's kind of familiar with the red-letter edition of a Bible where in the New Testament when Jesus talks, it, it puts the red, letters in red. Uh, the Jesus-centered Bible in the Old Testament, whenever it's a prophecy, something referring, pointing forward to Jesus... It puts it in blue letters, and then it has kind of a little note that explains, you know, this is referring to Jesus coming. Um, and it's, it's a really cool deal. Well, well, the guy that was in charge of the team that made that Bible taught um, this seminar about Jesus-centered youth ministry. And uh, I, I loved it. It was great um, because I think God's already been kind of working on me with the... Uh, and, and this is not a new concept. Charles Spurgeon said, wherever he said to a bunch of young preachers... Wherever you preach in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, turn and make a beeline to Jesus. Um, you know, if you're in the story of Noah and the flood, show that you know that's that redemption through the flood is uh, a foreshadowing of when Jesus would redeem us from the flood of our sin. You know, turn and make a beeline to Jesus, and that's so. This is not a new concept, but the idea of paying ridiculous attention to Jesus wherever, whatever He does, whatever He says. Um, just pay ridiculous attention to that. Um, and so, we're going to look at one of the stories of Jesus today. And this is in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark. But we're going to look at the one in the, the version of the story that's in Matthew, chapter 15. 
Matthew 15. And uh, this is the story. We're just going to read it and then we'll dig into it a little bit. Matthew chapter 15 and starting at verse 21. Here's the story. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were on the coast, uh, the, the northwest coast area. Um, like Israel's west coast was along the sea of the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, if you go north along the coast, you would get to Tyre and then keep on going north and you'd get to Sidon. And these were cities that Israel historically had fairly good relationship with. There were, there were other, the southern coastal cities was where the Philistines live. Israel still has conflict with that area. Um, that's called the Gaza Strip. Um, and that is the, one of the most dangerous places in the world that you can go. Um, if you make a trip to Israel, there are strong travel advisories and the U.S. State Department will pretty much forbid you from traveling anywhere near the Gaza Strip because there's constantly mortars and rockets being fired out of the Gaza Strip into the other parts of Israel that are in range. And if you go into the Gaza Strip, even as a journalist, there's no guarantee you can get out again. Um, like, it's just a horribly volatile part of the world. That's the southern coast area. Um, that's where the Philistines used to live, Gaza being one of the ancient Philistine cities. But if you go north, Tyre and Sidon, Israel had a pretty good relationship with these two cities. Uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, was uh, the man who became a really good friend of King David. And, uh, and David arranged with Hiram to harvest lumber, the, the cedars of Lebanon, the famous cedars of Lebanon. They hi- harvested uh, Lebanon cedar and then floated it down the coast and then brought it up to Jerusalem to build uh, the palace. And then Solomon really redoubled his efforts in this area. And, and the temple and the, um, the, the palace that Solomon built for himself was known as the Palace of the Cedars of Lebanon. And it was all through David and then Solomon's relationship with the king of, of Tyre that made it possible for that trade to happen. And, and so these, these cities historically had a pretty good relationship with the nation of Israel, but there, was definitely a, there definitely would have been a feeling on the part of these uh, Phoenician people, which that's who lived in, in Tyre and Sidon, um, they were seagoing people. They were they were ancient navigators that were exceptionally good at what they did. But there would have been a feeling among those people that the the Israelites definitely saw them as second tier citizens, um, even though they had this good trade relationship. Uh, the Jews, even when the Jews lost the economic and military power under David and Solomon. They would have treated these Phoenician people as outsiders, as Gentiles, and even uh, anybody who was not a Jew uh, would have sometimes been referred to as these heathen dogs. And um, not fun to be referred to as a dog in any situation, except like um, if you grew up in the 90s and 2000s, teenagers would say to each other, "What's up, dog?" But um, you know that was kind of okay. But then the rest of the time, not not fun to be referred to as a dog. Um, and the, and and so we we jump into this story where Jesus makes his first sorry second journey outside native Jewish territory 
and into an area where there were a lot of the, the, the culture was distinctly non-Jewish. Now, there were a lot of Jews in Tyre and Sidon because of that ancient trade relationship. There's just kind of a Jewish presence there. But this was an area where Jesus was traveling outside Jewish territory into Tyre and Sidon. Okay, that's enough background. Let's dig in again. Verse 22 of Matthew 15. A Gentile woman who lived there, and the Mark's Gospel called her a woman from Syrian Phoenicia. Um, so she was Phoenician by ancestry who lived there, came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even dogs are, able, are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Father, would you be with us in these next few moments as we... Try to find a little bit of truth about who you are and who we are in your in your sight. Thank you. So let me tell you the story. She hurried down the stone street between the houses as fast as her limping stride would take her. She navigated through fishmongers' carts, through goats, through small children and chickens. Her breath came in ragged gasps, and the few people who saw her face stopped, startled, and staring. She was used to that reaction. She knew that the long, crooked scar from forehead to chin was like a brand, and that in, on this day her wide-eyed, desperate expression made her almost grotesque. But she was far past any concern with what these people thought about her appearance. The night had been the worst she could remember, and with morning had come a decision. No social stigma, no mocking merchant, not even a Roman legion could deter her now. The old scar on her face was just the most visible of the many she carried. She worried that this time her limp would be permanent. Her twisted knee was stubbornly refusing to regain strength. And there were brand new scratches on her face and on her arms from just last night. And all from her own precious daughter. That a girl of only seven years and a thin, almost gaunt girl of seven at that was capable of such rage and violent strength was difficult for her to make some people understand. The fits had begun two years ago during her husband's illness. As his health faded and his breathing became thinner and more labored, his fear made him a desperate, grasping tyrant on his sickbed. He had called in the priests of the old gods, the gods their ancestors had called Baal and Ashtoreth before the Romans came. The house reeked with the rotten odors of the increasingly macabre sacrifices until he had descended into incoherent fever. Then one day, he awoke for a moment with a cry of despair and was gone. She buried all the talismans and charms with him, but something had stayed behind. The wide-eyed girl, who was so quiet and pliable most of the time, became at first unpredictably defiant. Then she became 
something else. She would attack her mother without warning. She would tear out her own hair by the handful. She would beat her forehead against the stone wall or just scream for hours, insensitive to her mother's attempts to quiet her. The mother knew she had to keep the girl inside the house. If she terrorized the town, she might be caught and killed by fearful neighbors. One of her neighbors had told her plainly that she should drown the girl and be free from the curse on her family that her husband had caused. The mother's instinctive reaction was a quick-tongued reply that she wished the neighbor's mother had drowned him as a baby so no one would have to see his face. His loud cursing pursued her down the street. She lashed out with laughter at him, but feared he would harm her daughter someday when she was away. And so the mother, mother absorbed the rage night after night, wrapped herself around her daughter, sometimes unable to avoid the scratching fingers the fists or the violent lunges that threw them both across the room, leaving bruises and sometimes sprains and scars. Then when the tiny body was too exhausted to move, the mother would watch the girl's face and could see her daughter return. Then the thin shoulders would spasm with a despairing weeping while her mother gritted her teeth and pleaded with her daughter to stay with her until they both finally slept as fatigue overcame all else. She somehow managed to feed them both by mending clothing and weaving damaged tent cloth. Most of the girls' fits came only at night, so her mother would make hurried trips to fetch water and supplies and food while her daughter sat alone in the house in the day. The mother's quick sarcasm and caustic wit made some of the traders and craftsmen laugh, and they would send work her way. Sometimes the work was steady. And other times she went for days with no work and they ate nothing and her sarcasm made people angry. Yesterday the mother had seen a group of men walking to a large house near the seaport. They were Jewish men, but not wealthy. The leader of the group appeared to be a young rabbi. As they neared her, she instinctively drew into a shaded corner of a building and turned away. She knew the superior, scornful looks her Phoenician race would bring from the Jews, as well as their revulsion if they saw her scarred face. But as she turned away, the young rabbi turned and looked across the dusty road at her. His look held no scorn, no disgust. There was no calculated cruelty or judgment. He simply looked at her, saw her, met her eye, and gave a slight nod of pleasant greeting. And then he walked on. She realized she hadn't returned the greeting. Then, when she went to buy bread, there were several men talking excitedly about Jesus, the Jewish rabbi that they said was a miracle worker, descended from their old line of kings, apparently, the heir of David. They said he could walk out on the sea and make bread and fish come up out of the water. They said he could cure blindness by turning muddy water into magical wine. She rolled her eyes privately at this. She had had her fill of tricksters and magicians and shamans. But then last night, her daughter had become the other girl again. But it was worse. She shrieked and clawed and bit and kicked and slavered and raged for hours on end. And she would subside with her lungs heaving for a minute or two and then it would come again. And all night the mother clung to her daughter, absorbing the pain calling out through her sobbing for her daughter to come back, to remember who she was, to come back to her mother. And then at some point in the pre-dawn darkness, she began calling out 
for God to rescue her daughter. She didn't know which God she was talking to, and she didn't care. If there was a God who would help, it would have to be an unselfish God. One who didn't care much about sacrifices or rich gifts. It would have to be a good God. It would have to be a God who could be convinced to show mercy. So she began to call out quietly, asking the good God to hear her. And then as the sky began to turn gray and then blue, her daughter's small body had finally sagged in her arms and slept. As the mother fell into fitful unconsciousness, she dreamed of the young rabbi nodding to her. In her dream, he spoke to her. But there was a darkness closing in on her, and it made her unable to hear what he said, and she was afraid. But then he spoke to the darkness, and suddenly she knew the darkness was afraid. The dream repeated itself several times until finally she shouted in her dream and asked the rabbi if there was a good God. Then he spoke again, and the darkness fled in terror, and what he said was, I am Jesus. I am. She awoke with the words so clearly in her ears, and it seemed they had actually been spoken aloud in the room. And she was instantly fully awake. That rabbi, that was Jesus, the miracle worker, and she knew where he was staying. She limped through the crowded streets, hurrying to move faster than her doubt and her fear. He was Jewish. He would probably despise her when he realized she was Phoenician. Dogs, the Jews called them. Jews despised everyone but Jews. He would probably turn out to be just like all the other magicians she had known, demanding more and more payment and growing impatient with her inability to pay. She knew she was worthless. She knew her daughter's condition was something that she had deserved and probably brought on herself. Her scarred face and broken body were proof of the curse on their family. And if the rumors were true, he was descended from kings. This was probably a wasted attempt. But on she went anyway, nearer to the house by the seaport. When she arrived, the door was open. There were two small girls in the courtyard washing clothes in a large bowl. They looked up curiously for a moment, but then ignored her when they saw she appeared to be no one of consequence. She went to the door and started to knock, but it was open, and she saw the rabbi sitting on a low chair reading from a scroll. Several other men sat nearby eating or resting. The social impossibility of what she was about to do struck her, and it was almost overwhelming. There on the doorframe was the tiny scroll with Jewish holy writings inside. This was a Jewish home. For a Phoenician to enter a Jewish residence invited scorn and anger and sometimes violence. A woman coming alone was also forbidden, and her scarred appearance. As in her dream the night before, a darkness began to close in on her. She could imagine she felt the darkness pressing her down, that she could feel it crawling up the back of her scalp. Then suddenly she realized the rabbi was looking at her. Despair washed over her, but she was inside the door already, and it was too late to turn and run. She thought of the small form curled up in the blanket at her house. If there was any hope at all, she had to try. If there was a good God, a merciful God, maybe He would tell this miracle worker rabbi what she should do. She pushed back at the darkness as if it were a physical thing. And then she spoke, but her voice sounded thin and distant. She stopped and tried again. How should she address a Jewish rabbi 
What about a rabbi descended from kings? She spoke with trembling hands, but her voice was steady. She said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. For my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. He looked at her and then seemed to consider something for a moment. Then he looked back at his scroll and resumed reading. He'd said nothing. The others in the room were all looking at her with the annoyance and disgust that she had expected. This was not going well. She almost turned to go, but then she saw that he was looking at her again. His expression was expectant and not unfriendly. She wondered if, he was, if she was expected to offer money. She had brought none. She looked around, hoping for some cue that, as to how she should proceed next. A long, awkward silence pervaded. But then one of the other men spoke to the rabbi and said, Tell her to go away. She is bothering all of us with her begging. The darkness pressed on her back harder and harder. The rabbi turned and looked at her again and finally spoke. I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. He said, There it was, the Jewish superiority that she had expected. But when he spoke, the darkness receded a bit and she could breathe again. She knew she should turn and go, but suddenly she was lowering herself to her knees and then bowing her face to the floor and she said, Lord, help me. He would tell her to leave now. She knew that. He could tell she had no money to pay him. She had failed. He spoke again and his words at first confirmed her fears. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs, he said. He emphasized that word dogs, drawing it out pointedly. She began to weep. There it was. The hatred of her race, the disdain for her scarred appearance, the Jewish superiority, but then she saw he was still looking at her. She had to try. She and her daughter had no other hope left. And her sarcasm rescued her through a tight throat and clenched teeth. She said, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. The darkness blurred her vision and made her ears ring and the pressure was almost unbearable. And then the most unexpected thing happened. The rabbi laughed. She looked up, wondering, and saw him, his head thrown back, pure delight on his face. He laughed a long, ringing laugh, and the darkness fled away and did not return. The dogs are allowed to eat the scraps, he shouted. He shook his head and laughed again, and the other men in the room stared in confusion. Then he stood and he came to her. He knelt in front of her, raised his hands. She started back, gasping slightly, almost expecting to be struck. But he slowly put his hands on her shoulders. He looked her in the eye. She remembered her dream. I am Jesus. I am. He had said nothing aloud, but he nodded once. And then spoke again, slowly and softly. Dear woman, he said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. Your daughter is well, the demon will not return. 
He stayed there holding her gaze for a moment more. Then he stood and returned to his chair, picked up his scroll, and resumed reading. She was suddenly breathing hard. She lurched to her feet. Oh, she said. Oh, and then she was out the door, moving as fast as she could, if it were true. She limped around the corners, pushed through a flock of sheep, down some steps in a painful, jolting stride, and then turned in the door of the small, quiet house. Her eyes took a moment to adjust to the darker interior. Then her vision swam and she grasped the doorframe for balance. Her daughter sat on a small table, her legs dangling cheerfully. There was, incredibly, on her face, a real smile. She jumped down and ran forward. Emma, said her daughter, I was waiting for you. Let me tell you what happened. I dreamed a king came to me. He told me I was free. And when he said it, the dark things came untrue. Mother, I'm very hungry. Do we have any bread? Now, we don't know any more about this woman's story after this. We don't know what happened to her and to her daughter. The Bible doesn't mention her again. But we know her life and that her daughter's life were forever changed that day. You know something? I am wrong a lot. Please don't say amen. Looking at you, Dick Humphrey. And I'm so glad for many of you in this church who are so faithful to point out to me when I'm wrong. You're just such a blessing to me. I... I think Richard Button and Paula Oring and Rachel Slaybach uh, believe God has called them specifically to this church just so they can bless me by pointing out to me all the ways I'm wrong. I'm so grateful for people like that. They're like a pastoral appreciation gift that gives all year long. So yeah, I, I'm wrong a lot. But I read several commentaries this week on this passage of Scripture because it really struck me where it says Jesus called her a dog, right? I mean, why would He do that? It was like a it was like a racial epithet, you know? Very degrading and insulting. Why in the world would he do that? One of the commentaries, and it's actually a commentary I really like usually that I read, said uh, something about this story that I the more I studied it, the more I think it's way off. I usually like this this commentary, but usually I I mean, I think it's way off. Uh, it said this. It said Jesus was not insulting the woman. Instead, he was saying that she must not demand what God had ordained for the Jews. She should wait for God's appointed time when the Gentiles would receive the good news of the gospel. And I admit, okay, I'm wrong a lot. I might be wrong about this. But think through this with me. He's, he's pointing out some kind of esoteric theological thing about how she should wait until the gospel came to the Gentiles. That, didn't, that woman didn't care about any of that. She didn't know about any of that stuff. Why would he say that? To her for that reason, you know? And it, it, it was like, this is not a satisfying commentary uh, paragraph, you know? And I think Jesus knew exactly all the hang-ups this woman had. I think he could see all of it. Her shame, her certainty that she had been cursed, her doubt, her fear, all the people who had told her she was worthless, all the suffering she'd gone through trying to protect her poor daughter, feeling like she was losing her daughter... Jesus knew all of that. He knew her history. He knew her future. But He knew for some reason that she needed to straighten her backbone, jut out her chin, and say, I don't care what anyone thinks of me. I don't care how bad they say I am. I don't care if I am really worthless. 
I love my daughter, and if there's a good God out there, I want Him to help us. And the least He could do is give us the crumbs from His table. So in a sense, it's almost like He's baiting her. He makes her face up to her feelings of worthlessness, to her doubt, hopelessness, despair, all of it. And despite facing all of that, and in the face of the racial discrimination that she expected, despite all of that, I believe everything Jesus said here was because He loved her and He loved her daughter. So yes, He called her a dog, but then the next thing He said was, Dear woman. Dear woman. And it was already done. He says, go, you know, it's already done. Your daughter as well. Here's why I tell you this story, and here's why I believe Matthew and Mark recorded this story in their Gospels, their biographies of Jesus. I believe there are many of us who have spent our lives believing there really isn't any way for things to change in our lives. There isn't any change ahead for our families. We can try harder and put a bold face on it, stiff upper lip, have a good attitude, and things will seem better, but nothing will ever really change. There are many of us who believe that we're in a sense cursed, that we can work hard and keep our families fed and keep things sort of working in a routine, but we know it's just a constant battle to push back the darkness. Many of us have almost given up on hope that things will ever change. Many of us have had other people tell us that we're, we're hopeless. We've seen their scorn and their patronizing derision. Many people have told you your whole life maybe that you were worthless, you were hopeless. And I believe Jesus says to us today, what if it's true? What if you are cursed? What if you are powerless to ever change anything? What if it's all true? Do you have the faith anyway to believe that I am God? Do you believe that I am good? And do you believe that I am the one who has already overcome all of that? All of that stuff that you believe about yourself, all of that stuff that may even, might even be true about you. Do you believe that I am the one who has already overcome all of that? Would you stand? Let's pray. Today, if you've come into this place and your world is totally upside down, then I believe this is totally for you. Um, I believe that Jesus is saying to you just as if you had come to Him for healing for a a troubled daughter, whatever it is in your world that's upside down, I believe that Jesus is speaking to you right now. He's saying, you know, what if all of those things about you are true? Do you still believe that I am good, that I'm loving, and that I've already overcome it all? If you've come to today and, uh, you know, You've got things mostly humming along okay, but uh, you know if you were honest with yourself and with God, you'd admit that there are some struggles. If that's you today, then I believe this is for you as well. Because so much of the time we try to just put a bold face on things, make it look okay on the outside, and then we realize that we're just one bad day away from it all crashing down. And I believe Jesus says to you, you know, Do you trust in your carefully constructed life? Or do you trust me? And then, if you've totally trusted Him with everything in your heart, everything in your life, then I believe maybe He would say to you today, He would challenge you and say, is there someone around you 
that maybe you've made to feel like a second-class citizen, maybe even without realizing it. See, Jesus' disciples had been following him around everywhere. And when this woman came, they said, Jesus, she's, she's really bothering us. You know, those neighbors really have loud parties. They leave trash all over their yard and they don't cut their grass. Jesus, they're really bothering us. And if that's you today, then I believe Jesus' challenge to you is, would you show His compassion? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for this passage. I thank You for the truth that there is no one beyond hope. Because even if it's true that we've made a destructive mess of our own lives, even if it's true that we don't have it all together, even if it's true that we have trouble sometimes showing compassion, You've already overcome all of that. You are God and You are good. Lord, I pray that You would help us to get on board with what You're doing in our community and in our world. Help us to believe that You are who You say You are. Help us to reach out in faith. And I thank You that You give us so much more than the crumbs from Your table, that You bless us, You help us. You offer a real life and a life that lasts forever. God, make us different because of Your Word today. In Your name we pray. Amen. Thank You for coming. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.